But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well, be, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? We started this morning. I'm going to move that out of there and I'm going to clean it. 
Let me tell you what I cleaned it. I cleaned it. Scrubbed the floor. Scrubbed underneath the cotton candy machine. Turned it over. I mean, I cleaned it. And I pushed that thing back there, and I was feeling good. Well, they came for our inspection. We didn't go so well. And I'm thinking, I cleaned under the cotton candy machine. And they're like, what? They never even looked. Because it wasn't important. It didn't matter. But I had made it a priority. And I was awfully proud of myself for the job that I had done there. And nobody even noticed it. Because my priorities were out of whack. I should have cleaned the glass in the front of the building that everybody sees, right? And we have a problem, I think, as believers specifically, with our priorities. That which is of first importance. And we're going to see today, from what we've read there in Jonah, and I'm like, well, I can't believe those four chapters clipped by that quickly. But um, I think we're going to be amazed at how Jonah's priorities are out of whack and what God does to help him get his focus back, if he does. And if you'll notice, this book ends kind of cliffhanger. We'll talk about that when we get there. So we're going to start with verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Well, now, we can't start there, right? We've got to at least paint a little bit of a picture of what we've been through these last three chapters of Jonah. And my, I'm not switching up here. If y'all would switch my slides back there, please. I'm getting slide change error. Um, so let me, let me go back and read the end of chapter 3, just verse 10. And I'm going to read that in tandem. Um, in continuance with uh, chapter 4, verse 1. When God saw what they did, they being the Ninevites, after Jonah preached the message that God had sent them to preach, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So the Ninevites heard God's message through Jonah, and that message was, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And I would say Jonah kind of said that with a plum. He was just excited because he wanted them to be destroyed. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, exclamation point. And I think God meant him to have a question mark at the end of that. And upon hearing this message, the Ninevites repented in literal sackcloth and ashes from the king down to their beasts, everybody, the greatest of them to the least of them. And they hoped that God would show them mercy. And then verse 10 shows clearly that God does indeed show them mercy by not sending the disaster that was foretold. And Job just had to be tickled to death because he had such a successful ministry, right? Yay! Woo! God, me and you, we did it, right? Well, Warren Wiersbe says it this way, quote, If this book had ended at the last verse of chapter 3... History would have portrayed Jonah as the greatest of the prophets. After all, preaching one message that motivated thousands of people to repent and turn to God was no mean accomplishment. Quote. I mean, what if today I preached and everybody affirmatively responded and said, God, we love you and we want you and you're the greatest and we're sinners. I mean, I'd be pretty happy with this handful of people here. That all responded to the message that God sent. What about a whole city? I mean, if a whole city hears and responds to your message, 
that steps on your toes, good. Get mad at me right now because we're going to hit it a lot. And note that. Let it sink in really good, really well. Jonah is displeased exceedingly, and he is angry. He is fired up. He's kicking and stomping mad. And knowing what we know about Jonah, we're not real surprised, though, are we? Unfortunately not. We've said from chapter 1, basically, that he's a racist, selfish, not wanting to share God's word kind of prophet, especially outside the bounds of his national Israel. Jonah was a good patriot. So we're not surprised here that he's angry. Now we don't have any outward signs for sure that God isn't going to destroy the Ninevites yet. Remember it was supposed to be 40 days after Jonah's message that Nineveh was to be overthrown. So what is Jonah mad about? He's not mad right here that God said, okay, I won't do it. He's mad because what? He sees them responding in a repentant way toward his message. That's what he's mad about at this point. Now we'll get there. He's going to be mad about God relenting. But right now he's just mad that they are repenting. And he's fired up. He is mad and exceedingly displeased by the Ninevites' visible repentance. He is upset that they're sorry. He's mad that they responded in a way that would be seen by God as repentant. Why? Verse 2 tells us. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to, to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Basically, Jonah saying, I told you. Jonah, in prayer, nonetheless, gives God the business, saying, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? I, I, my. He takes his anger and goes to God with it and said, This is exactly what I thought would happen. This is what I said. Now, whether he said it to himself or to God back there in Israel, we don't know. But when God's word came that Jonah was to go to Nineveh, Jonah's mind went to this. Oh no, I'm going to preach and they're going to repent. And note this, Jonah speaks of his country. Not God's people, not God's land, not Israel, but my country. My country tis of me, Jonah said. Sweet land of Jonah. Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? He loved his country. He looks down on people from other countries. My country is the greatest. It's the best. Mine, mine. And now this was the worst case scenario. This was the outcome that he dreaded. This scene with Ninevites calling out to God for mercy. Ninevites being sorry. This that he just saw happen before his very eyes at the proclamation of the word that God had given him. And oh, how disgusting. How like God. That's Jonah's point. And Jonah says that's what motivated him to make haste to flee to Tarshish. God's word came to proclaim this woe upon the Ninevites, and Jonah thought, uh-uh, no, I'm not going to do that. i got to go. He says he took the quick route to Tarshish, at least that's what he planned to do, for I knew, I knew it. I knew you're a gracious God.
gracious God. I knew that you were merciful. I knew you're slow to anger. And I knew that you abound in steadfast love. And I knew that you relent from disaster. Sounds like a compliment. But to Jonah, he's ticked about it. He's mad about it. He's fussing at God about it. See, God, you're gracious. You're merciful. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. You relent from disaster. Sounds like a really good praise song. Except he's breathing it out of his nose like brimstone and fire. Out of Jonah's heart, out of Jonah's mouth, this is not a praise song. He is completely disgusted. And he's disgusted with God. How disgusted is he? Verse 3. Therefore, now, O Lord... Please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Now that's disgusted. I knew this would happen. I knew if I preached your message, they'd hear it and repent. And I knew that you are prone to show mercy. Therefore, O Lord, take my life from me. It's better for me to be dead than to live and see this. God, kill me. Kill me now. I knew it. They did it. You're doing you, and you're doing what you always do. So kill me. and see this mess of Ninevites and sackcloth and ashes repenting. Now, again, hear that. For it's better for me, Jonah says, to die than to live. Wow! Now, some things upset me. I get upset. Some things downright infuriate me. But doggone it, this man wants to die. That's upset. And I don't want you to miss that. I want you to see how upset he is about the sight of these Ninevites in sackcloth and ashes. The magnitude of Jonah's displeasure is unreal. Ain't no wonder he ran to Tarshish. He cared that much, or I guess he didn't care, or cared wrongly or something. He That much. He was angry. How do we know that this is what he's feeling? Well, we're not guessing. God himself diagnoses him. Look at verse 4. Oh, this question. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? I told you we was going to hit that word a lot, and we're just getting started. So God hears what Jonah is saying, and he knows what Jonah is feeling. God sees your heart. Maybe you stood up this morning and you sang praises, but your heart was grumbling. God sees your heart. And God replies to Jonah, and look at his reply. He doesn't rebuke Jonah. And he surely could have. He doesn't agree with Jonah. And he shouldn't. But instead of affirming Jonah, it's alright Jonah, I get why you're upset. Instead of confronting him, you loser, God questions him. And I think that's pretty interesting. So many possibilities for God in this interchange. And God seems to enter through this mode. Tell me about it. You do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? It's an interestingly constructed sentence, isn't it? Now, God's smarter than Jonah, and you and me, and everyone else in his universe. And he's setting Jonah up for something later. So before we get there, 
What, again, is Jonah mad about here? He's mad that the Ninevites listened to God's message through him and showed outward signs, at least, of repentance. And God's question is, are you doing the right thing? Are you feeling the right way to be angry right now? Should you be angry? And are you doing the right thing in this moment, considering the event that just took place? And the obvious answer is no. And what's interesting is we don't get an answer from Jonah to God's question here. We will in verse 9, but we won't the last question, we will this question. But we know that Jonah feels justified in his anger because of what he had just said about knowing that God was going to forgive these jokers when he was back in Israel when God told him to come here. He knew it. These people don't deserve forgiveness in Jonah's mind. So yes, he is angry, and yes, he is right and justified to be angry in his mindset. These people don't deserve grace. So Jonah, his answer is not recorded, but he skips out on God and he takes a hike. Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So again, note here, he's waiting. Having finished his preaching and then praying to God in anger at the success of that preaching, <laughs> Jonah leaves Nineveh and heads east out of the city. Now, one thing I know, I'm no geography major. I'm no geographist. I don't know what the word is there. <laughs> but Israel's to the west of Nineveh, not to the east. Jonah's not going home. He's camping out for a show. And it's like he wants to dance over their ashes when this wrath comes and head home after he dances over their ashes. He goes out to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself. The Israelites would make these types of structures during the Feast of Booths to commemorate them living and sleeping in booths on their trip from Egypt up to Israel. It was made out of branches and sticks, leaves, just a little shelter. Is he waiting for a bus? No. Jonah's still holding out hope that God just might still bring his wrath against them. Maybe they're not sorry enough. Maybe they're just putting on a show. So he's sitting there still hoping that the Ninevites' repentance wasn't right or wasn't good enough. And holding out hope that God is going to pour out his wrath on the city. Now again, I don't know how long his preaching took. We'd seen that Nineveh was a three days journey broad. But Jonah's message was that Nineveh was going to be overthrown in 40 days. So wherever we are on that 40 day timeline, Jonah seems content to get a good distance from that disgusting place and those disgusting people and wait and see if God's wrath is coming upon those after those said 40 days or not. This guy wants the judgment of God to fall on these people so bad it seems that he's willing to sit in a homemade booth for a month or more to see it for himself. Or maybe it's the end of the 40-day period. Maybe he's expecting it tomorrow. Not sure. It's clear Jonah is looking for fireworks and is willing to wait for them. Now again, not only am I not a geographist or geographer, I'm also not a meteorologist. But one thing I know for sure, it gets hot in that area of the world, doesn't it, Steve? Now watch this. Jonah settles in for the show in verse 6. 
Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So Jonah's sitting here in this self-made booth thing. And he's getting hot out in the Middle Eastern sun, out in the desert. And God, again, setting Jonah up, sees this and God does something. God moves. And he moves in power. <laughs> the verse says, the Lord God, which is translated Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God appointed a plant. The sovereign God of the universe, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, makes a plant grow up out of the ground there to the east of Nineveh. And that plant just so happens to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over Jonah's head. God said, plant, grow, give him shade. And that's what happened. And why did the Lord God do that? To save Jonah from his discomfort. And boy, isn't that our prayer? Oh, God, save me from my discomfort. Don't save the pagans. Don't save the lost people. Save me from my discomfort. Mm. To save Jonah from his discomfort. Now, don't miss that. God sees his grumpy, racist prophet sitting out in the heat. And to save Jonah from his discomfort, God makes a plant pop up over him to give him shade. Oh, we love it when God saves us from our discomfort, don't we? And how did Jonah respond to being saved from his discomfort by this plant? Angry and hot, the plant comes, gives him shade, and it says that Jonah was now exceedingly glad. I am Jonah. He is hot or cold, isn't he? He hates things or he loves them. And it seems that he loves those things that make him comfortable. And hates those things that don't. How about you? So now Jonah can sit and wait for the fire of God to fall and wipe out his enemies in the AC. <laughs> Remember when our AC wasn't working in here? Oh, poor us. <laughs> and God saved us from our discomfort. <laughs> now all he needs is a recliner, right? <laughs> well, things go the other way pretty quickly. Check out verse 7. But... Dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. That's weird, isn't it? <laughs> it's weird with the plant thing. Now we've got a worm. Jonah's booth gets some temperature moderation, but the next day, early the next morning, God, now you read that right, you see that right, that next morning, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. So God had appointed the plant to save Jonah from his discomfort, but now God appoints a worm to attack that same plant that he appointed before. I told you God was setting Jonah up. And that worm, appointed by God, God brought the worm, told the worm what to do, and that worm is told by God and obeys God, by attacking the plant so that the plant withered. 
God sent the worm to attack the plant. Now, why would God do that? He's working to get a very specific and important point across to Jonah. God gives and God takes away. Are we seeing it, right? You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Now, how many times have you been God for taking something away from you? Especially your comfort. God gives and God takes away. More on that in just a bit. What happens from here after the early worm gets the plant? See what I did there? Watch this. Verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked God, I would say again, that he might die. And said, it's better for you to die than to live. What a verse. So the desert sun rises. It's pretty hot. And with Jonah's shade plant worm stricken, God appoints, just like he appointed a fish to swallow Jonah, just like he appointed a plant, just like he appointed a worm, God appoints a scorching east wind. Listen, y'all, God's in control of everything. Amen. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head to the point that he was faint. Oh, it had been hot. Now it's really, really hot. He's about to faint. And is at the point of wanting to die. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. Now, any of y'all ever been so hot you just wanted to die? Some of you thinking, yeah, buddy. For me, it's cold, by the way. It's so cold. Just, just kill me. Just kill me now. It's 12 degrees. God, just take my life from me. I don't want it. Jonas, it's better for me to die than to live. Okay, bro. Things have gone from bad to worse to, well, not quite as bad. To absolutely end of life bad. Why? Warren Mearsby again puts it this way. God knew that Jonah was very uncomfortable sitting in that booth, so he graciously caused the vine to grow whose large leaves would protect Jonah from the hot sun. This made Jonah happy. But the next morning when God prepared a worm to kill the vine, Jonah was unhappy. The combination of the hot sun and the smothering desert wind made him want to die even more. Now watch this. Wearsby finishes by saying, As he had done in the depths of the sea, God was reminding Jonah of what it was like to be lost, helpless, hopeless, miserable. Jonah was experiencing a taste of hell as he sat and watched the city. End quote. Remember I said God was about to teach Jonah a lesson? Well, pay attention, class. God does nothing. God does nothing by accident. Verse 9. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Now here's what God was setting him up for in verse 4 when he asked Jonah there if he did well to be angry. Now God asks him if he does well to be angry for the plant. He had asked Jonah in verse 4 if he was right to be so mad. Do you do well to be angry? And God didn't identify what Jonah was angry about then, just do you do well to be angry? And was he right then? Jonah didn't answer that question. Of course he wasn't right. 
Jonah felt right, but he wasn't right. Jonah's only impetus for anger then was the fact that the Ninevites had repented, which would normally be seen as a good thing, but not to Jonah. And now here, God pinpoints what Jonah is angry over. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? God knows Jonah's mad because his plant got taken away, along with the shade that it provided, along with the comfort that came from that shade. The plant was really Jonah's comfort, Jonah's pleasure, Jonah's solace. Jonah had lost his hope. Not only was the city he hated showing repentance and not getting destroyed, but now Jonah's hot and bothered, literally, because a worm made his shade plant and the sun is scorching over him and a scorching wind, all three are sucking the life out of him. So back to God's question. Do you do well, Jonah, to be angry for the plant? Is it right for you, Jonah, to be so mad about a plant that was giving you some temporary relief from all this heat? Your plant goes bye-bye. Does that make you mad? And is it right for you to be that mad? And it's a rhetorical question, really. God's pointing out that's really not good. Jonah is not doing well to be so angry over a plant. But Jonah answers the question anyway, which he did not do back in verse 4. And his answer, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Blank, yes, it's right. I'm so mad I could die right now. Jonah has had it. A ridiculous calling to go to his enemy's camp and spread God's word and aboard a trip to Tarshish, almost drowning, getting swallowed by a fish, getting puked up by that same fish, a trip to Nineveh, preaching to his hated rivals, then repenting, still hoping to see God do some damage, a worm eating his shade plant, the burning sun, a scorching east wind, and now a grilling from God himself. So yes, 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 I am mad enough to die, just kill me. That would be better than this. I'm angry enough to die. But now God's going to tie all this up. And he's going to end this whole book with a stone cold stunner. Verses 10 and 11. Jonah fuming in his anger, justifying himself in his anger, and the Lord said, You pity the plant. For which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Question mark. End of book. I have a great trembling fear not being able to communicate all that's being said here. So this is really the whole book. Jonah's mad enough to die, burning down in the desert somewhere outside of Nineveh. And God's going to give his perspective on it all, which of course is the only right perspective. And the Lord says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a God had asked if it was right for Jonah to be so mad about the plant. Now, he points out that Jonah pitied the plant. Jonah's attitude toward the plant was one of sorrow to see its destruction. Oh no, my plant's been destroyed. What a pity. And God points out that Jonah didn't do anything to make that plant appear or grow. 
And, God says, that plant was here one day and gone next. And Jonah's attention and affections were set wholesale on that plant. You might see a problem here. Now watch this. And should I not, God says, pity Nineveh? Uh-oh. Get ready, Jim. It's coming. The contrast between a one-day-old plant and a city. And it's that dramatic and even more so. You pity a plant, Jonah. Should I be a city? Not just a city, but Nineveh, that great city. Built by the mighty Nimrod centuries before we'd seen back in Genesis 10. But it's not about Nineveh's longevity or architecture or great size. No, Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons, people, who do not know their right hand from their left. Now what's that mean? It could mean a few different things. It could mean that they're morons. I don't think it means that, but it could mean that. It could mean that he's referring only to the babies, the toddlers, who haven't grown up enough yet to know their right hand from their left. And if he is referring just to the babies and people who don't know their right hand from them, remember we had said earlier in the earlier message that population estimates for Nineveh exceeded 600,000. So that 120,000 kids would make sense there. So it could mean that. He could just be referring to the kids who weren't even old enough to know what's right and wrong. 120,000. It's a lot of people. It could mean that the Ninevites in general, exceeding 120,000 people probably, don't know the right way to go because they haven't had the truth proclaimed to them yet. They know general right and wrong, and they know that they're mean, and they're going over the known world, but they need the truth of God's word. They need God's message, which they had not received before Jonah was sent to them. Should I not, God asks, pity them, Jonah? You pity a plant! Should I not pity all these people and thus send my man here to proclaim my word? You hate these people, Jonah, but I have a plan to rescue them and make them mine. I want them to know my grace and not my wrath. Is that okay with you, Jonah? I want them to be my children, not my enemies. You okay with that, Jonah? Should I not do that, Jonah? Did I not do that for you, Jonah? Should you not want to participate with me in that, Jonah? Or are you too focused on your plant, your comfort, your prejudices to be on the same page as me? Oh, my prophet. But Jonah aside, should God not want to redeem lost people? Should God not want to save people? Should God not be willing and able to show grace if he so chooses? And should I not pity men of that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left and also the child? Now also just to address the cattle deal here. Why would God include and also much cattle here? And the rights activists are, see, see, see. God is not an animal rights activist per se. 
Is he concerned, as concerned about the cattle as he is the people? What about the rest of the animals? The simple answer is no. God placed man over every animal during the creation narrative. And after the flood, animals were given for food for humans. Listen to me, your dog's not a person. Cattle are not people. Are you not worth much more than many sparrows? Yeah. Lord, we've gotten so upside down in our culture. We treasure animals and hate people. We spend more on our pets than we do the poor. I'm convicted of that standing here right now. But, I don't have this up there, but Psalm 36, 6 says, Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. God does care about animals. He absolutely does. And he cares about those animals more than Jonah cared for his plant. So it seems that God's trying to reorient Jonah away from his selfish obsession with his shade plant and his own comfort and reorient them to the immense loss of life of humans and animals if God was to wipe them off the face of the earth. Jonah had no concern for anyone but himself at this point. So back to what we saw God ask, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left and not so much cattle? Jonah, you care about your plant. Should I not care about the lives of those in Nineveh? Which is really asking Jonah, should you not care about these lives as well? And how does Jonah respond? Well, we don't know. The book ends with a question. Dangling in the scorching east wind. It's like a cliffhanger or a play or a movie that ends with the narrator looking into the camera and asking a question as if it's posed to us. And that's the point. How do we respond to this question, this chapter, this book? How do we respond to this God? That's what's important. So we turn to occasion to address that. But first, like we've done with the other three chapters, I want to look directly at what God did, what the, what the text says that God did directly. And I'm going to do chapter 4, but then I'm going to go back and real quickly run through all four chapters of what God is said to have done directly in this book. Chapter 4, what God did. God was gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and God relented from disaster. God asked Jonah if he did well to be angry. God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah to save him from his discomfort. God also appointed a worm that attacked that plant. God appointed a scorching east wind. God asked Jonah if he did well to be angry for the plant. And at the end, God directly questioned Jonah. So that means that God is sovereign over being gracious, merciful, his anger. God's sovereign over our emotions. Because he asked Jonah, do you right to be? God's sovereign over plants. God is sovereign over worms. God's sovereign over the wind. And God is sovereign enough to question you in your discomfort. Now let me just go through here, chapters 1 through 3. 
God gave his word to Jonah. God commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh. Didn't ask him, by the way. God hurled a great wind upon the sea. There's the wind again. God decided to cast of the lot of the sailors. God made the sea and the dry land. God did as it has pleased him. God ceased the sea from its raging. God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Chapter 2. God answered Jonah. God heard uh, Jonah's voice. God brought up Jonah's life from the pit. Salvation belongs to God. God preserved Jonah alive in the fish's belly for three days and three nights. God spoke to the fish. God made the fish vomit Jonah up. And God said, cast Jonah into the deep. Chapter 3. God gave his word to Jonah a second time. Praise God. God saw what the Ninevites did. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And God did not do the disaster. And in chapter 4 again, God was gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relent from disaster. God asked Jonah if he did well to be angry. God appointed a plant. God appointed a worm. God appointed a scorching east wind. God asked Jonah if he did well to be angry for the plant. And God directly confronted Jonah with questions about it. Did God, at the end of the Old or the New Testament, relinquish his sovereignty over all of these things? No. So is God still sovereign over worms today? Is God still sovereign over fish vomit today? <laughs> Why am I asking you that? Because it is imperative that we understand that this world spins according to the sovereign will of God, down to the very magma in the core of the earth, out to the farthest star in the farthest reaches of the universe. God is directly sovereign Amen. over everything. In Ruth, we saw God providentially working through everyday common events. In Jonah, we see him directly intervening and saying, I am sovereign. Now for application. Three A's. Triple A. Answers Anger Amendment. Answers Anger Amendment. Answers. This is a very uncomfortable application point for me. The application that I want us to see from this is we don't have all the answers. Amen. God has all the answers to all the questions, and he doesn't share everything with us, does he? Yes, we have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, but we are so cocksure of ourselves. I know. Everybody else is stupid, but I know. And what we need to do is to relinquish so much of our control that we think we have the answer to every problem, every question, every tragedy, every event. Because here's the deal. I think we as the church specifically really run the risk of running people off with having answers to questions we don't really know anything about. And we're not honest with ourselves and struggling with the will of God sometimes. Jonah looked like a jerk, but I, I appreciate his honesty. No! I don't want to do that! 
like it. And until we accept that, until we confess that, until we understand that we don't have all the answers, and we don't know how this tapestry is coming together, we're God. And let me tell you what, church, you don't have all the answers. You're like, well, the gospel is the answer to every problem. Jesus is the answer. And that's true. But let me tell you what, it comes off as callous and cold and unbeliever. When you just throw out these pious platitudes to help explain away their trouble. Why has this stuff happened in Afghanistan? I don't know. And if I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. Why do hurricanes happen? Well, it's to stir up the debris on the bottom of the... Shut up! promise you, this morning, those people in New Orleans don't care about the debris on the bottom of the sea that's sitting in their front yard right now. You see, you shouldn't say shut up, but I did. We don't have all the answers. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Don't try to explain away their problems or their troubles. Let me ask you this question. Do you, like Jonah, struggle with God's grace? If you don't, you don't know it. Do you struggle with God's sovereignty? If you don't, you don't know it. Let us beware of always being the people with all the answers about everything. We have clarity on some things, but not on most things. Afghanistan again. If we just spout off, well, we know that God's causing everything to work together for our good and His glory. Yeah, tell those people that who are being drug out of their house. That's cold and callous. That's explaining away a tragedy. And that's not what we're called to do. Don't be so trite, so broad, so sure of things that are unclear. And if you don't find yourself arguing with God a few times here and there, you don't know it. I'm not saying it's right or wrong to argue with God. I'm not saying either way. And if I find myself arguing with God, usually there's too much of me in the equation. It's I mean mine. But I think we've got to have some open-ended questions in our life or we're not being honest with ourselves or with the scriptures or with those people who are not everything, not all the time, but sometimes. Just be quiet. And say, I don't know. I don't know why that happened. And I'm sorry that it did. Was it not the will of God? It is the will of God. And I'm still sorry that it happened. Because I don't have that big a sight to understand how it all fits into the equation. Can we just hurt with people? Can we just look at people in the face and you... In humility, say, I think there's a lot of love there. Proverbs 25:2. It's the glory of God to conceal things. Oh, we don't like that at all, do we? But the glory of kings is to search things out. And you may never reach the end of that 
searching out. You may never get the final answer. Oh, now it all makes sense. It is the glory of God to conceal things. You know what that means? Little G gods, you and me? We ain't God. And it's His glory to conceal things from us. Deuteronomy 29 29. We've probably used it 628 times in application points. Make it 629. That's it. 29. 2 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are some things that we don't know. There are secret things. If you think you've got all the answers, you're acting like a God and you don't know the God of the Bible the way that you should. Let's say it that way. It's His glory to conceal things. The secret things belong to Him. So let's stop acting like we know all the answers to everything. Well, if you know the answer, give the answer. But if you don't, just be quiet. There's glory in that for God and not for us. Answers. Second application point is anger. Uh-oh. Did ever get mad? Generally, we feel justified in our anger. Divided camps. Those dummies who wear masks. Those dummies who don't wear masks. Those dummies who took a shot. Those dummies who didn't take a shot. You name it. Oh, we'll pick a camp. And man, we get angry when somebody disagrees with us or does something contrary to what we believe is right. Do you do well to be angry? Very rarely do I do well to be angry. And let me tell you what I think those people out there see from the church more than anything else. I think it's anger. I had somebody very close to me a few weeks ago ask me this question out of the blue. Why, why do Christians hate gay people? Out of the blue. Not a believer. Not a Christian. Why was he asking that? Because it seems like we had gay people. 
the venom that we spew out, with the keyboard warrior-ness of it. Homosexuality is a sin, clearly defined in the scripture. But if you come across as hating gay people, you are wrong. Your anger has put you at odds with God. And oh, so many of us are so angry about so much, so much of the time. And what was Jonah angry about? What he lost, what he had taken away, his comfort, his idea of God's will. Jonah never thanked God for saving sailors, but he thanked God for saving him. Jonah got mad when God forgave the Ninevites. But he was awfully glad when God sent him a shade plant. His anger was so much a result of other people's salvation. His anger was based on other people receiving grace. Steve mentioned it here this morning. Would you rejoice that there was a great revival in Afghanistan? Eastern terrorist was seized by the power of a great affection for Jesus. Would you really? Maybe you would. What's your priority? What do you really care about? Your God doing what you think he should do? Or the God of the sovereign, the sovereign God of the universe doing what he sovereignly does? Does Jonah have a right to be angry for extending mercy and grace to them? That's of course he doesn't. So the next time you're angry, here's a question to ask yourself. Do you do well to be angry? What's the result? What's the outcome? What are the words that flow from your anger? What actions do you take out of your anger? I'm not saying you can't be angry. Take that anger to God 
and let him reorient you, just like he did with Jimmy. That's probably a better thing than getting on the computer or typing this Or going out there and spewing your venom to a lost and dying world that's looking for forgiveness, even though they don't know that. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. God would tell the Colossians, Paul would tell the Colossians through God and the Ephesians to put away anger. say, I, Jonah, wrote this book or some Ninevite person who repented got the story from Jonah. Or we don't really know, but I think it had to be Jonah. Who else would know what happened in the belly of the fish? Who else would know what he prayed when he was down at the bottom of the sea with the weeds wrapped around his head? And if Jonah wrote this book, and I really do think he did, not that that's gospel clarity, I, I don't have that. Look at how he depicted himself. Look at the lessons that Jonah has learned as he writes this thing. Look at how he looks back at his failures and tells us of them. Look at how he views God in the midst of his failures. John Piper says Jonah's life hung on the same mercy that he didn't want to be shown to the Ninevites. And if you read this book, it seems like he learned that lesson. You know what? I think God delighted in that repentance as much as he delighted in the repentance of the Ninevites. God doesn't cast us off when we let our anger control ourselves. God doesn't cast us off when we hate other people. God doesn't cast us off when we don't want him to show grace to people. God confronts us. God questions us, and God reorients us just like he did with Jonah. And looking back with the right perspective, we can see, look what you did, God. Look who I was. And look what you did. And proclaim in the middle of his book, salvation belongs to the Lord. Listen, this book teaches us that God delights in salvation. God delights in repentance. It's true for us too. Piper again. God allowed Jonah to write this book. He also thought that Jonah wrote it. And if he allowed Jonah to write this book, listen, he will allow you to write your book too. After all your disobedience, after your humiliation, after your sorrow, and after your repentance. hope and pray that in my late 90s as I lean over on my staff and I'm going to have a staff when I'm and it's going to be glorious I hope I can say like John Newton said I've learned two things in my life I'm a great sinner 
that's what Jonah's telling us. Amen. And Jonah got to write that. I really believe it was him. <clears throat> and he's like, man, was I a dummy. And God's like, you were a dummy. <laughs> and I love you. Write it down so other people know too. That you were a dummy. And I love you. You let your anger control you, Jonah. Write it down. Tell them about it. Tell them how I used you in spite of you. Because I'm sovereign and I can do that. We see it in the life of Paul and I'll be done. 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, the great apostle says. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him. And he says this finally in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 10. Last of all, after showing himself to all these other people, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. See him shaking his head. From the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not a thing. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. God loves to show mercy and grace. One might say that's his priority. Is it ours? That which is of first importance, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 earlier, that which is of first importance, that which is of first importance, our priority should match God. God's priority is the gospel. And we see it lived out in Jonah's life, the Ninevites life, and the life of Paul. In my life, in your life, and for that world out there that is dying for grace right now. Listen to me. God loves to show mercy and grace. May we be the carriers of that mercy and grace as we share the gospel with every tribe, nation, tongue, language. And then we start here homes, in our communities, in our church, in our work, in our state, in the world, to the ends of the earth until the end of time. With the priority of the gospel of grace, God loves to show sinners. Let's pray. God, we all need a fresh page, a new start. Seems like every minute. Mercies are made new every morning. Your grace is inexhaustible. And where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And for those of us who have placed our trust and our faith in the finished work of Christ for our salvation, we know that, and we forget it, and you remind us and we worship you. May we be just as willing to share that grace as we are to receive. God, if there be those here in this place or the sound of my voice who don't know that forgiveness, that fresh start, that amendment to their lives, God, may they confess their sins, proclaim their need for a Savior, and see Jesus as that Savior. We don't have all the answers, but we do have that one. God, be sovereign. Be Lord of our anger. 
to him. Who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Stay with us if you can.